As you are, take your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be wrapping up this three-part look at these first 12 verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. God's inerrant, infallible word. Let's, let's read it. You read along, following as I read out loud. God's inerrant word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Your witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word, that it is without error, that it is without imperfections. We can trust you. We ask now in this very short time that you would remind us not only of what we've seen already and particularly the preceding couple of weeks, but from the very beginning of this wonderful little book that you might teach us tonight and we might go out of this place with a greater desire to, to not only love Christ better, but to be more like our Savior, that the gospel of God indeed might take hold of our hearts, we pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Well, when I started this chapter, I explained to you that it's, it's Paul really offering something of a defense of his life and ministry. He's being accused. If you go to, to the letters to the Corinthians, you find him doing the same thing at various points there. 
uh, reminding people of his credentials as an apostle. Uh, there were those who, who didn't, didn't care for what Paul was doing. You can imagine, particularly among the Jewish uh, hierarchy, uh, they, they had lost uh, quite, quite a, a, a person in the person of, of Saul, who is now known as Paul. He was one of their, of their future leaders, and God had saved him and taken him out of his, his legalistic, Judaistic ways and, and shown him the beauty of Christ. And, and so every chance they had to, to speak ill of Paul, they did. Anytime they had the opportunity to try to undermine his ministry, they did. And so he, from time to time, has to remind people that he is exactly what he purports to be, and that is a slave of God, a minister of the gospel. And so, just as he began this little book, uh, telling us that he's writing this time to the Thessalonians, he simply says, it's from Paul. Often he gives a, uh, a notice to his apostolic authority. Well, here it comes in this second chapter when he's offering something of a defense. As I said to you over the last couple of weeks, uh, we have to defend ourselves from time to time in various ways. But as Christians, from time to time, we have to defend ourselves. Uh, well, why do you say that, someone might say. Say what? Well, you just said thus and so. On what authority? Why is your opinion better than my opinion? Why is your religion better than my religion? And Paul begins by saying, um, well, first of all, it's not mine. It's God's. Do you notice? The gospel of God. It's the good news of God. And there we understand it's God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's not just speaking to Christ here. We saw that even in the beginning also, didn't we? To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And we talked there about how that Paul, who's very big on the in Christ, here it's in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not just united to Jesus Christ through faith. We're united to the entire Godhead. That should encourage us. That should encourage each of you individually. United to the Holy Spirit. So he's given to me to walk beside me and I'm somehow hitched to him. Yeah. We're, we're yoked to him. I was just noticing this morning, by the way, following along the reading, I was reading in the New American Standard 2020. And the yoke, 2020 says, is not burdensome. We typically, it's easy. Well, okay, it's easy. What's easy about a big wooden yoke? Well, the point is it's not burdensome. It doesn't doesn't chafe us. It doesn't rub us raw. It doesn't, no, it's, it's not burdensome. It's just like John says in 1 John, the law concerning the law is not burdensome to the true believer. Well, 
Paul begins by saying, this is not my religion, this is not my words, this is God's word. It's the gospel of God. And so he says that our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. We talked about that in the first uh, installment of this series, and that is the inerrancy of the scripture is right there embedded in those words. What I'm saying to you, he says, is without error, inerrant. No, no degree of, of impurities in this. It is, it is perfect. You remember how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 19 after he begins that chapter with natural revelation and the wonderful role of natural revelation for, for, the, for, for all of humanity so that everyone may know that there is a God no one can walk around saying there is no God because all of creation declares God. You say, but some people say there is no God, so it apparently doesn't reveal it very well. No. Paul answers that. They simply suppress the truth. It's clear. They just suppress it. And then remember the psalmist elsewhere says, by the way, people who suppress the truth, they're fools. People who say there is no God, they're just fools. And so Paul says, it's inerrant. It's without impurities. The psalmist described the word of God this way, perfect, sure, right, and pure. Those are the four descriptors that he gives for God's word. After he passes out of natural revelation, he then starts in verse 7 with special revelation. What we know is the Bible. And he describes the Bible that way. Perfect, sure, right, and pure. Well, then Paul moves on after he says, here, I'm not saying to you anything that's just my personal opinion. I'm saying God's word. Then he moves on and he says, and besides that, my conduct was above reproach. Remember, that's what we looked at last week. Paul's conduct was above reproach. Now, that's the primary umbrella qualification for officers of the church, elders and deacons. And by the way, next week there will be an announcement in the bulletin, and there will be the sheets put out in the narthex. The month of March we'll be having nominations for elders and deacons. It's uh, every two-year cycle we do that. Well, it's the... It's the second year. It's time to do that. So just be looking for those as, as we'll be getting that information out to you. But the first qualification is above reproach. The conduct. Not just above reproach, by the way, in the eyes of the church, but also outside the church. And Paul hit on that. We saw it last week. His conduct was, was above picking on. Nothing there. As Paul, as, as, uh, as Peter says, it's so that if we live in such a manner, so that if somebody says something about us, it just deflects back on them. It doesn't stick. We're like Teflon. It just doesn't stick because our conduct is such. By the way, I said that's the primary qualification of elders and deacons, but it's, it's for every Christian, really. 
you took vows if you're a member of this church or an, another church that's, that's Presbyterian. The third vow, you took this vow that you would, in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, live a life that becomes the follower of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. He lived a life that becomes the follower of Christ Jesus. His conduct was above reproach. Now, some self-examination questions, huh? Do we speak enough of God's word to where somebody says, well, I don't agree with you. You can simply say, no, you don't agree with God. That's not my opinion. That wasn't my story. That's what God said. Now, you may choose to, to disagree with God and risk the perils of that, but that's not my opinion, I, I said. That's not what I spoke to you. I spoke to you God's word. That's supposed to be a question, folks. Are your words so sprinkled with God's word that if somebody said, I don't agree with you, they wouldn't be disagreeing with you and your personal opinions. They'd be disagreeing with God, and they would know that they're disagreeing with God. I mean, it's one thing, isn't it? You know, I'm thinking right now of, a, of someone in this room. And I take great delight in disagreeing with his personal opinions. But every once in a while, he gets me with, are you sure that's what the Bible says? And when somebody, when somebody puts you in that position, the way we're made with that God-shaped vacuum, that heart that has that, that empty spot for God, It makes a difference. To disagree with the humans, one thing, but to disagree with God is something else for an image bearer, no matter how hardened, how callous they may be. So that's the first question on the front end. You say, wait a minute, we should have had this, these hard questions at the end so we could ease out and not have to think about them. Well, that's why I'm starting backwards tonight. Second is our conduct. Is our conduct such? Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go straight to a point here. What's something Paul picks up on, and we'll see this in a moment, he's already alluded to it in a different sense, but it's do, do we speak and do we live in such a way that people know we're Christians and they can't dismiss us, and I'm talking us now as in you, not Pastor Sean, not... Not, not me, not even our elders. Here, here's something that we run into. Well, you get paid to do that. You have to do that. You have to talk to people about Jesus. I mean, that's what the church pays you for. Now, you may not believe that, but people do say those kind of things to us. Isn't it wonderful they can't use that one on you? 
You get to go about the work of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, and you don't get paid for it. You just do it because you love Jesus. And so they can't use that one on you. So do we live a life in such a manner and speak in such a manner in the public venues where God puts us to where our conduct supports our message? Okay, enough conviction. Let's get on to the last point. Number three in your outline, genuine gospel messengers leave examples worthy of God, verses 9 through 12. We are supposed to leave examples worthy of God, Paul says. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. so that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, your witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. So the first thing I want you to see is he's simply reminding them what they already know. That he's, he, he told them earlier how thankful he was in chapter 1, how thankful he was for the example they were setting and that people had heard, he had heard from people of the life they were living and the way they were living made his ministry easier. It actually vindicated his message because the power of the gospel had been so effective in their life that people, people received Paul because of the way they were living out their exemplary life. And now he comes back and he says, hey, you remember how I lived? And he's just reminding them something they already knew. It's, e it's easy, isn't it, sometimes to forget the things that we're supposed to know? Miss Marple, one of my favorite lines. Miss Marple, Agatha Christie. Never forget that line. Oh, I just remembered something I forgot that I knew. And we forget that we know things sometimes. And particularly things about Christ. And things about the Lord God Almighty. And how we're supposed to live. And it's good to be reminded of those things. And remember them. And Paul's reminding them again of how he lived in their presence. I worked hard among you, he says. I could have taken a salary. You know how like a, he goes, he says, how I worked night and day. That we, now he's, he's including his friends, Silas and Timothy, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. I worked night and day. He could have taken a salary. Because elsewhere he says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. The laborer is worthy of his wages. But the point here is, Paul says, I opted out on that one. 
so that my finances could not be an obstacle. It couldn't be a deterrent. It could not be a stumbling block to anyone to keep them from hearing the gospel of God. In your case, and even in my case, and now people are saying, oh, he's an apostle. But don't you remember, he says, I didn't take any money. Could have, but it didn't. Now that brings us to a question, doesn't it? And that's this. If Paul's finances answered the critics, how about ours? Do the first fruits of your labors go to God or to the mortgage? To God or to other expenses? The answer is supposed to be to God. Can't tell you through the years how many people I've heard say, you know, by the time I finish paying the mortgage and paying my electric bill and paying my water and, and, and catching up on this and that, I just don't have anything for the church. Well, that's because you don't love the church. Paul's finances were so exemplary that nobody could say anything against his use of his finances. And it should be the same with us. Now, not only the first fruits are indicative of how we handle our finances, but how about the discretionary funds? Well, some of you say, well, you know, young, new job, don't have any discretionary funds. I got you, I understand. But then some of you do. And then what are our priorities in the use of discretionary funds? After everything, after, after, after you've, you've given your offerings at the beginning, the church and God's work is taken care of, and the expenses have all been met because we're supposed to take care of our expenses. And then there's those funds. How do you use them? Wisely? Saving for a rainy day? Saving for the kids? college or too many Amazon by now okay too convicting we'll move on what Paul's saying though really is very simple isn't it I use my finances well so that no one could use that against me. No one. Second thing, then he goes on. After he says that, did you notice what he says? He says, your witnesses. God's also a witness how holy and righteous, blameless was our conduct. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Now, you may remember from last week, I told you this was coming because back up in verse 7, he says, I was like a nursing mother to you. And now he's like a faithful father to them. So he uses both the mother and the father image here to remind them of how he loved them as only a mother can love and as only a father can love. And as a father... He exhorted them. He encouraged them. 
But he also put a he also he also put a charge in them. You know, sometimes our 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 children, both our biological, our adopted, and our spiritual children need a little. I don't know if any of you have ever been around cattle, but cattle herders. And if you're ever around the, the, the market when they're selling cattle, uh, to move the cattle along, they have what's called a cattle prod. It's like a taser. It's a stick. And it's got an electric charge to it. And those recalcitrant, contumacious cows may want to go one way or the other or may not want to go at all. And that little charge gets them going. That's what Paul says here as a father. He had to do in Thessalonica. Not just encourage them, not just exhort them, but sometimes I had to, had to, had to tell you what to do and put, put a little charge in it. A little force behind it. Dads, you have to do that. You have to be an example to them as well. The way you exhort them, the way you encourage them, the way you charge them, do it out of love. I'm reminded of the words of Christ. What person is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? So if you, being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Paul was living such a life so as to imitate God the Father. That's what he's saying. I lived a life, a fatherly life to you, so as to imitate God the Father. I didn't give you bad things. I gave you the best things. And even when you, when you didn't know that you needed it, I gave it to you. And I did for you things that you will never, ever understand. Isn't that true? A father, probably the best example of that in the Bible is Abraham, isn't it? Abraham and Isaac. Remember chapter 20 of Genesis when, uh, or 22 really, uh, Genesis 22, God has told Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him. You say, oh man, what's that got to do with this? Well, it has something to do with it because Isaac set a wonderful example for, or Abraham rather, set a wonderful example for Isaac. What? He was going to sacrifice him. So we should... We should go sacrifice our children. Yeah, in a sense. We encourage them, we exhort them, we charge them to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't want them having anything other than what God wants for them. Now, in God's providence... Abraham 
didn't have to go through with the sacrifice. But he was willing and he was there on the brink of sacrificing his son, knowing that, you know, if God said to do it, this is the best thing for me and the best thing for Isaac. So what Paul's saying is, when I was with you, I did what the best thing was for you. If it was a little encouragement, I did it. If I had to rebuke you a little bit, I did it. If I had to, if I had to get a little, little stern with you, I did that too. Because I'm a loving father, just like God the Father is toward us. What an exemplary life Paul must have lived. You think about that. And so, he comes to the end. He charged them to walk in a manner worthy of God. Not to look like other people. Not to dress like other people. Not to have a vocation like other people. And perhaps none of those things would be wrong in and of themselves. But that's not the point here. Paul's point is, everything I did for you was so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. In other words, I lived an exemplary life so you would follow my footsteps and walk in the same path that I had walked. Now we really get to a convicting, don't we? Dads, moms, elders, deacons, even children in the classroom, are you walking in, in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, worthy of God the Father, worthy of the Holy Spirit's presence with you, which he is at every step? Are you setting an example for others in the way you do it? And notice manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's ultimately what we're, what we're about, isn't it? That's what our walk is about. That's what our talk is about. Speaking God's word, conducting ourselves the way we're supposed to, living an exemplary life, is every bit of it is intended, is designed that we might not only enter into the kingdom ourselves, but that we might draw others into the kingdom with us, that we might lead them into the kingdom with us, the kingdom of God and the glory of God. So the gospel messenger lives and speaks to please God, not men, Paul says. The result is salvation for those who see and hear. That's what your elders are, are seeking to do. That's what we strive to do. Hebrews 13, we're to live as examples to you. 1 Peter chapter 5, we as elders to live as examples for you. Not coercing you, but leading by example, Peter says. And that not only includes what we say, but what we do. Deacons likewise. But then it, it trickles right on down to all of us. Living in such a manner 
that no one could hold the name of Christ in contempt. No one could dismiss this God thing, this Christian thing, because of what we say or what we do. That's a tall order, isn't it? Because we're sinners. And our tongue slips from time to time. And our feet turn to the left and the right sometimes. Sometimes they not only turn left or right, they stumble. They get tripped up. And so we're back to that third vow. That we resolve to live a life that becomes a follower of Christ. But what's that middle clause? In humble or, or that middle uh, prepositional phrase in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. So there we fall back because we're not up to this. Paul wasn't up to it in his own strength. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, he was up to it and he did speak the truth in love. He did live an exemplary life and he conducted himself in such a manner that no one, no one could speak against him. Wouldn't it be wonderful that at the end of each day we could look in the mirror and say, wow, today, in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, I brought honor to Christ. Well, that's going to be true if we begin the day by saying, Lord, I'm going to rely on you today for what I say and what I do. And I want this not so that people say, wow, you're really, you're really a good kid. You're really a holy person. What did Paul say? No, not for the praise of men, not as a man pleaser, but as a pleaser of God, for the honor of God. So every day we start, Lord, your spirit, your grace to live a life spoken and conducted that honors you and brings others into the kingdom and the glory of God. And then when we fail, what do we do? Well, we ask the Lord's forgiveness. Ask him to forgive us. And by the way, it just might be that we, we say something, we do something in the presence of someone else, and we go to them and we apologize and we tell them, I'm sorry I said it that way. That did not represent me properly, and it didn't represent my Lord properly. Please forgive me. And when they say, oh, it doesn't matter, say, oh, yeah, it does. That's common today, isn't it? You can't apologize to anyone anymore. I'm sorry about that. Not a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. Let me own my sin. Because I want you to know I sinned. Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's how we ought to be living. In word and deed.
for Christ and his glory. Father, thank you for this passage. It's been wonderful to just slow down and consider it in these little bites and ask now that you would, would cause us to go out with, with greater determination to speak the inerrant word of God to people, not our own opinions, not our own story, but his story, and to conduct ourselves in such a way that we'd be good examples for others. Not so they brag on us, but so they brag on our Savior Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.